0: This is Terry Beatley, your host of What If We've Been Wrong? I'm shining light into some dark places so that beauty, goodness, and truth defeat the schemes of the enemy. It's true, people are perishing for lack of knowledge, and we're instructed to have nothing to do with the evil deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. That's what I do on What If We've Been Wrong? Rethink, explore, and uncover some hidden truths so that more people can experience an abundant life And the joy of being set free from the shackles that hold us in prison. Welcome to What If We've Been Wrong. If you haven't been looking at the news, then you haven't picked up on the fact that they, the people on the left, are trying to do away with the Electoral College. If you missed the news from a couple months ago, uh, we know that the governor of Virginia is for infanticide, and we know Governor Cuomo up in New York. Um, you know, he just completely passed and, and, and so uh, bravely and uh, joyfully passed unfettered abortion law in the name of women's reproductive rights up in New York. And we, we have all sorts of attacks going on in America. Look at what they're doing to our children in the government run school. They're turning our children into one world government thinkers. We're being attacked. Left side, right side, frontal assault, and backside. Which is why I invited Delegate Bob Marshall uh, from Virginia. He served in the uh, House of Delegates for I think it was like 26 years. He's recently published a book called "Reclaiming the Republic." Uh, Delegate Marshall, thanks for being on the show today.
1: Well, thank you, Terry, for having me. Right, the, the book is "Reclaiming the Public Republic," and ten. Uh, books out of North Carolina has published it.
0: That's right, Tan Book. Well, he, you wrote it, and Tan Books published it, and it is packed full of information. Right. So let's just hop right on this thing. You know, let, let me kind of throw a wide question, Bob. What's at stake if we don't mm-hmm. if we don't pull back on on losing our country? To as far as I'm concerned, it's Marxism. Um, Maybe you got a different spin on this, but if we don't take this back from people who want to destroy our country, our liberty, our constitution, what's at stake?
1: Let me me just say this to you. Christ told his followers to be the salt of the earth. That's a, a metaphor for being the preservative of society. Salt was a preservative, still is a preservative. And if the Christians aren't doing this, what replaces that? Christ told us it was the leaven of the Pharisees. They're the ones who will animate and vivify for their own purposes the body politic. And that's very dangerous for people marked with a sign of faith.
0: <clears throat> right. Well, and so um, what what would you say, what kind of tactics, and you have 20 plus years experience at this, what tactics do progressive use to intimidate Christians from, you know, say, civic involvement? What do they do? How do they undermine Christians?
1: Well, they first of all claim that anybody who differs with them in the slightest is a bigot, a moral malfactor, a social outcast, someone who really doesn't deserve answers. So they they kind of vilify you. That's the that's the first thing.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Secondly, is when they lose an election, they don't quit there. They either say the election was fraudulent, like but the separate with. This Trump and Hillary for the last two years, or they want to change the entire mechanism of the election, hence the effort to get rid of the electoral college. So they don't stop. They just switch tactics. Their goals of domination remain the same. Now, if you, if you think about this, the, the book of Hosea said, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. It didn't say lack of enthusiasm, it says lack of knowledge. If that's the case, the anecdote to that is to gain knowledge of Caesar's world. And you say, well, you know, my, my goal is heaven. That's correct. But you get there by what you do or don't do to your brother on this earth. And again, Christ told us to render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God What is God's? What's the immediate implication of that? Any individual or group of individuals who seek total, absolute control over their fellow citizens is a dictator, is a totalitarian. They are violating that injunction, which basically states, look, there's a proper role for Caesar on earth, and there's a proper role for God on earth. Right. And both claim allegiance, and and both are are valid authorities. But if Caesar wants everything, there is no rendering, you know, to to the Lord. There's only rendering to Caesar. So Christians cannot be complacent with or or collaborate with or facilitate the erection of a total state government. And Mm -hmm. I don't mean just state, meaning like Virginia or, you know, Oregon or whatever— meaning the civil order cannot belong totally to Caesar. And in salvation history, if you think about this at all, mm-hmm. the Lord used individuals who knew the, the kind of how the ropes work with the power of the government where they were living. For example, Joseph, the coat of many colors. He, he was sold into slavery by his brothers, but he became the second in command in Egypt, Now, God, in effect, placed him in a position to save the chosen people from starvation. Why? Because he knew how Caesar's government worked. He operated. He was like, you know, just like I say, right after the Pharaoh, he was in charge. That was number one. Number two, Moses was raised in the courts of Pharaoh by Pharaoh's daughter. He knew how the Pharaoh's government work. He could talk to Pharaoh. He, he knew how to, you know, get into the uh, to the temple, to, into the, uh, you know, presence of of Pharaoh. And without that, how could the the request of the Lord have come to the ear of the head of the government? It wouldn't. You had to have somebody who knew how the government worked. Thirdly, Saint Paul was in a fight with the Sanhedrin, which was, I guess, the equivalent of the Jewish. Uh, Senate for Israel. Paul wanted to preach Christ crucified. The Sanhedrin went to the Roman governor Festus, and they wanted to to have him turn Paul over to them because they wanted to put a gag rule on him and not allow Paul to preach Christ crucified. Festus, if you read, if you remember the the book of the Acts, he seemed ready to turn Paul over for whatever reason right. to the Sanhedrin. What did Paul do? He said, you, you can't do that to me. Oh, why? Why can't it do to you? I'm the you know, Roman governor here. Paul said, because I am a Roman citizen, this must have, you know, hit Festus like a, you know, whack in the head with a with a four by four. He, in effect, was about to turn over a Roman citizen to someone whom Caesar thought to be a subordinate power. I mean, this would have cost him. It's not his it's not his head than his job. So he could not, consistent with the rules of the Roman Empire, how the government operated, turn a Roman citizen over to a conquered people for adjudication, for, you know, dismissal or evaluation or or, uh, handling in any way he wanted. So Festus said, you appeal to Caesar, you're going to Rome. This was in a religious rights, free speech situation. This wasn't over a contract. This was over religious uh, right, the ability of Paul to preach Christ crucified.
2: Right.
1: If the Lord used these three people, and he did use them, in part, he picked them because they, number one, they had faith, but number two, they also had a necessary condition for defending the faith. It was the knowledge of Caesar's world. These examples should teach us that we have a requirement To know about caesar's world to defend the truths of the faith or even just to live in peace and and practice your faith without being harassed right so if you don't do any of this you are asking for trouble
0: well and now now with that about asking for trouble i i think so much of the trouble begins with people don't even understand the value system for which america was founded upon which is the christian judeo value system embedded, completely embedded in the Declaration of Independence. You know, what I tell you know, people is that we, we have nothing to apologize for. That Declaration of Independence is not a Sharia document. It's not an atheist-based kind of document. You know, it's, it's the value system is based on. So, so but, but it swings back to this, the laws of nature and nature's God. That's written in there. But Americans today, uh, Delegate, they, they don't even understand what that means. So can you explain what, what did he mean when Thomas Jefferson wrote The Laws of Nature and Nature's God? What do we mean?
1: You know, this is really interesting. People often associate natural law only with um, Catholics or, or Roman Catholics. That is, that is not accurate. And it's certainly not accurate because among the, was it, 55 people who signed the Declaration of Independence, only one was a Roman Catholic whose name was Charles Carroll of Carrollton. He was probably the richest man mm-hmm. in the entire uh, you know, colonial uh, time. Mm-hmm. So natural law was the simple understanding of the rules of right and wrong writ in nature, where you know St. Paul refers to this, that the, that the pagans do by nature what you know, some of you are being required to do by faith. So if they do by nature what you do by faith, there's a congruence here. Right. The fact is, stealing is wrong. Why? Because it wasn't your property. If it wasn't your property, how do you propose to dispose of it? So these laws are written in nature. It's the book of nature. And whether you're Muhammad, whether you're an atheist, all things fall down. They don't fall up. Mm -hmm. And thou shalt not kill applies across the board. So... These things do not require faith. These moral precepts do not require faith. They're assisted by faith. They're refined by faith. Mm-hmm. They're implemented better if you do have the gift of faith, but they don't necessarily need faith for you to proceed that way. You, you need faith to be habitually virtuous. You don't need faith to be virtuous in one individual act. But we have totally forgotten that. Right. And when you veered so far from nature... You now have people, guys, who think they're women. I mean, you cannot change your DNA. That doesn't happen. Mm
2: -hmm. It's a
1: fantasy. But to see what that says, in nature, in the natural order, there are fixed rules. There are fixed, not just guidelines. There are fixed orders of being that you cannot transcend. Well, the transgender people, they claim they can do that. So there really aren't any laws of nature or nature's God. It's it's a whim. It's a God who is, you know, maybe absent-minded or, or whatever, but certainly there are no rules, permanent ones, that everybody has to keep at all places at all times and at all nations. So you see when you've got at least half of the Democratic Party thinking men can become women or vice versa, how far we have come. Right. So what I did in my book, the first chapter, after the introduction is, I discuss the laws of nature, mm-hmm. and nature's God because that was the found, that was the standard by which the founders of the country pointed to, asked the world to judge them about their actions. The laws of nature and nature's God.
0: Mm-hmm. All right. So let's well let's segue then over to well let's let's look at chapter one again. Religious liberty. So what's the origin of the term? religious liberty and you know how it's affirmed in the first amendment. How would you explain that one?
1: Well, religare is a Latin word meaning to bind. And liberty is kind of part of what you are when you have free will. So the founders did not want to have a country where you were compelled to be a certain denomination.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You were you were granted religious liberty Now, this is interesting. At the national level, nobody could be required to belong to any particular religious denomination because it says you can't require uh, anybody to to profess an oath for for a certain religion, for federal office. At the state level, there were requirements that you belong to certain Christian sects, that you profess belief in the Trinity, but for the national government, there was no religious test that could be given to say, like, well, if you're a you know Episcopal, you can't you know do that in um, you know Rhode Island, or you can't be a congressman from Rhode Island. There was no religious test for office in the federal government, but we have seen religious tests being imposed by United States senators. First of all, in the instance of this uh, Amy Coney Barrett, who was a uh, law professor at Notre Dame and was appointed as a uh, an appellate court judge in one of the districts in the middle of the United States. Diane Feinstein, when she was grilling uh, Ms. Barrett, <clears throat> said, you know, the, the dogma comes through to you. And What she was going after her for was her position, obviously, on abortion.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: then you had uh, this other judge. Uh, gosh, he was, I think he was for the D.C. Court of Appeals. I can't think of his name right now. Mm-hmm. But that senator from Hawaii, that lady who told all the men in the country to sit down and shut up, um, she basically said, y- "You belong to the Knights of Columbus. Right. That's a hate group. That's a bigot mm-hmm. group. That's how do you get to, how do you reach that point where a group that helps disabled children is a hate group or bigot group? I think the hate may be more uh, endemic to the U- U.S. senator projecting her animosity." onto this judge so the the position of christians in this society has taken about 15 steps back and it's not necessarily because of the aggressiveness of the seculars it's because of the pulling back of the christians you yeah. you, you can't have this for example let me give you an example i go on go well, on. you well no i just want to say
0: i don't think christians know how to well, for lack of a better word, argue, you know, the Christian apologetics. They don't know how. And then I think, too, there's this fear element. They're afraid, to. They're afraid they may offend somebody, and they don't understand that if we can't stand on our own Christian faith and be able to defend it, the enemy reigns. And that's, in my mind, that's what we're dealing with. I I think it's more of a lack of confidence or ability because they haven't been trained properly.
1: Well, that's the part why I wrote the book.
0: I know. That's I mean, why I want everybody to get your
1: book. <laughs>
2: the,
1: the knowledge of the natural law, well, right. the, the, the civic order. I mean, let me give you an example. There's 100, roughly 187,000, 88,000 precincts in the entire United States. In uh, Virginia, there's 2,578 or, or 67. Anyway, how many of those precincts? A, a precinct is the smallest division of the body politic it, it's a place mm, right. where everybody goes to vote on a certain day of the year it's, mm-hmm. it's it's bound by boundary lines uh the characteristics of a precinct are that you have to have so many people to be able to get through the polling day within like 30 if in Virginia it's 13 hours it goes from 6 a.m to 7 uh, p.m other states it goes from 6 a.m to, to 8 p.m at night so a, a precinct is the is the place where you where you live, where you you actually have the most influence because it's closest to you, and it's it's again it's how Caesar's world is organized. So if you're going to do anything, you got to conform to the way Caesar's world is structured. So that's the first thing that you look at. You need to know uh, what are the boundary lines of your precinct. But again, there's 187,000 precincts, 188,000. How many are run by dedicated, intelligent, shrewd Christians? Uh, I wouldn't even begin to hazard a guess. But given what I see in the composition of Congress, it's got to be clearly less than half.
0: And with that, we're going to take a quick break. Don't go anywhere. And we're going to be coming right back with Delegate Bob Marshall. We're going to be digging deeper into his book, Reclaiming the Republic.
3: Welcome to the new era in communications, America Out Loud Talk Radio.
0: All right, you're back with Terry Beatley and Delegate Bob Marshall. He's, he's written a book called Reclaiming the Republic. You can get that book on Amazon. I highly encourage you to get that book. You probably won't find a better book. De- Delegate uh, Marshall, he knows how to write And he writes well, and he writes so that everybody can understand uh, this kind of content. So, uh, Delia, we're going to shift over here, talking about the rolling back rule by judges. That's Chapter 2 in your book. Um, What did delegates in the uh, 1787 Philadelphia Constitutional Convention think of the role of judges in the national government, especially regarding the establishment of public policy? What did they think?
1: Absolutely zero. They should have no role in establishing policy. They were to implement the policy that the legislature uh, <clears throat> devised based on the representation to a uh, an electorate that largely held the natural law uh, ethic to be the you know kind of the uh, arbitration lines between people. So the 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 courts were not supposed to devise on their own. Or Or fill in the cracks where they, were, they thought there was something missing in in the Constitution. For example, if if you look at Article uh, three of the uh, Constitution, you see that there's something called jurisdiction. Jurisdiction is the authority that a court has to hear a case and to render a decision uh, you know pro and con, and then it you know it, it gets appealed up. <clears throat> the u S. Constitution is the supreme law of the land. In the civil order, and the state judges and federal judges are all to be bound by that. Mm-hmm. But there is a provision in there where Congress can control the type of case that goes from the state supreme court to a federal court.
0: Could, could they have they stopped Roe v. Wade? Abolish could the, they have stopped Roe v. Wade from the, Could they? Okay. Look, well, yes,
1: yes. I put in. Um, I, I, I put in my book. An example, this is kind of later on, but I put in my book an example of a statute put introduced by a uh, congressman from Indiana named Hofstetler. And this was like in the early 2000s. It was floor managed by a, a congressman from Wisconsin named Sensenbrenner, who was chairman of the uh, Judiciary Committee. But anyway, Hofstetler put this bill in,
2: <clears throat>
1: and it harkened back to a law that Bill Clinton, of all people, signed, which Congress passed which was called the Defense of Marriage Act. And what that said was that, say, Virginia did not have to accept a law from Hawaii which said that two guys can get married. In other words, you're supposed to have reciprocity uh, between the states, except if Congress doesn't want it there. So when this started in the mid-'90s, you know, Virginia actually passed a statute. We're not going to recognize out-of-state Marriages between two men, I amended that, and I successfully amended that to say we're not going to recognize out of state civil unions uh, you know from um, between uh, people of the same sex. Well <clears throat> anyway, the homosexual lobby was very shrewd, and they were trying to use the mechanism of the Constitution to leverage their drive for from so-called marriage it's not marriage but it's you know so-called marriage anyway
2: mm-hmm.
1: the uh, the people in in the congress uh, started to to pass the, the, the a statute in, i think it was 2004 which said that uh, no federal court can hear a challenge to the law that congress passed that allowed states to decline to recognize out-of-state same-sex marriages or same-sex civil unions it, it passed the House, mm-hmm. and I actually point there that the Library of Congress gave bum advice to members of Congress in saying that you couldn't do this. And uh, the actual uh, uh, the lawyer uh, who worked for Sensenbrenner is a friend of mine. His name is Phil Kiko. He basically wrote to the uh, Library of Congress and pointed out where they, in fact, had acknowledged that courts can have their jurisdiction curbed. <clears throat> Mm -hmm. And this passed the House of of Representatives, and it went to the Senate. The Senate was run by Republicans at that time. You had George Bush as president. Unfortunately, the Republican senators did not take this bill up. Had they taken it up and had it been presented to George Bush, who hopefully would have signed it, the Obergefell decision, which came down in 2015, could never have been rendered because there could not be be in a federal court a challenge from a state law limiting marriage to one man, one woman or a civil union, and there was not not allowance for civil unions. It could not have gotten into a federal court to strike that down and every other one. Mm -hmm. So this is where the Republicans totally, you know, by their whimpery, by their timidity, by their not wanting to face these things, have put us in a box.
2: Oh yeah. Now,
1: you can still do this I mean, you you can still do this to say you can't take these cases up and then we start passing these things all over again, but had that been done prior to this, but you know, I mean, the abortion people were kind of proceeding, you know, pretty pretty rapidly. The abortion reform so-called laws started passing in the 1960s, where they mid 1960s, where they basically took a life of the mother exception clause. Mm-hmm. All although Virginia's was interesting, they they had a law that says you can't have an abortion except to save it the life of the mother or the child. So abortion didn't mean the killing of the baby, it meant removing the baby from the mother. Right. But anyway, had that happened, the Supreme Court could not have struck down all these laws. Now let me let me tell you how how powerful or how complete the authority is on this thing. After the Civil War the South was occupied by armies, and there were military you know, governors running states, basically. And there was a fight in Mississippi between an editor of a paper and the Union General down there. And the editor wanted to print certain things, I think critical of Lincoln, and the Union General said, no, you're not going to do it. So the editor went ahead to kind of push a test case. This um, test case went all the way up. And was heard in the U.S. Supreme Court in the late 1960s. I'm sorry, 1860s. And then the Supreme Court adjourned for summer recess. But they, but they heard they heard the arguments pro and con. The, the lawyers came there and you know made their points and then they they left. In between the time when the court adjourned and the court reconvened, the Radical Republicans in Congress passed a statute which said there was no jurisdiction to heal, hear appeals. On cases like this, it passed, became law. So when the Supreme Court reconvened, you know, later, I I guess in the fall, they were going to render a decision on this. The just, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court said, basically, uh, this was called ex parte McCardle. said, well, in the meantime, the, the ability of the court to hear this case has been removed from our ability, from our jurisdiction, so we can't hear any appeals like this. Case dismissed. And you, this is when this is having to do with a right under the First Amendment, and a, a newspaper editor wanting to print an editorial, and being run by a, a union uh, union general for you know uh, military government, and the Supreme Court, which was you know god knows it was you know the 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 configuration of it they said you can't hear we can't render a decision because our jurisdiction is gone which means that the congress can yank the jurisdiction today if they wanted to to shove all these cases back into the states now it, it doesn't well, end that, the abortion fight
0: oh go ahead it doesn't end the abortion but it fight.
1: but mm-hmm. it 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 repositions it it does Re revive in effect uh, the old statutes in a number of states which were never repealed, so if Roe is reversed, then uh, laws in a number of states go back automatically go back into effect. It's probably right. maybe twelve or twelve or fourteen. Right. The rest of the states would have to pass statutes uh, all over again. Okay. And there's no doubt in my mind that Planned Parenthood would try to invalidate those laws that are currently on the books, but never, but can't be enforced.
0: Right. Well, you may have already answered the question then. So does the Constitution give the Supreme Court a right to be the final arbiter and interpreter of the Constitution? Walk Just walk us through that in summation, not not lengthy, but just summation.
1: The answer in one word is no. Now, who do I I'm not citing Bob Marshall in that. I'm citing John Roberts, the John Roberts, who was an assistant attorney general under Ronald Reagan in the Justice Department, mm-hmm. who now is the chief justice of the United States Supreme Court, all that's required for due process is that you have your case heard somewhere in some court. It doesn't, doesn't say a federal court. There's no due process right to have a case heard in the U.S. Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. There's only a, a, a due process right that you have it heard somewhere. But it doesn't have to be heard in the U.S. Supreme Court. Moreover, all presidents take an oath to uphold and defend the Constitution. All members of Congress take an oath to uphold and defend the Constitution. All state legislators take oaths to uphold and defend the Constitution. When you go into the military, you take an oath to uphold and defend the Constitution. The Supreme Court does not have the exclusive right to be the final arbiter. Mm-hmm. but they are the final arbiter if congress doesn't take the jurisdiction away this is where you need to get into a fight on this thing now I, well,
2: what, know, this what, is maybe
1: what, arcane knowledge it shouldn't be yeah it, well,
2: go on. what about
0: what about tolerance we keep hearing this word we have to be tolerant tolerant does the constitution say anything about our, that we have to be tolerant
1: actually the only the uh, Declaration of Independence says that you know mankind are more disposed to endure certain ills, uh, you know when they can be tolerated. but it th- th- becomes a point where you can't do it. Toleration is a term from physics where it applies to movement be- beyond one side of a mean or the other. In other words, a steel beam or a wooden beam has certain flexibility in it. Not a lot, but theres some there. The beam can operate as a support for a bridge as long as you don't exceed the tolerance. When you exceed the tolerance,
2: mm-hmm. the beam
1: breaks, the bridge falls down. Right. Tolerance implies necessarily a standard from which you can only slightly deviate and still keep the entire structure working. Tolerate doesn't mean anything goes. The other side uses that well. Uh, you have to tolerate, uh, you know, these kinds of behaviors. No, no, you don't.
2: Right.
1: Uh, you know, you you hate the sin, love the sinner, but you don't have to tolerate right. any kind of behavior. I mean, no civil government
2: could operate that way.
0: Okay, I think it'd be a good spot to to just have you explain, just in case someone's listening to this and they they've been maybe confused about why. We as Christians fight so hard to preserve God-ordained marriage. Explain the why behind it, Delegate. I, I can't think of anyone who's probably more articulate about this. What, you know, what happens? Well, we've already done it. I mean, it's already been at least temporarily destroyed, but, but why defend it? Why, why not just embrace two men, two women, go get married? What happens to a culture?
1: First of all, in the order of nature, a child is not possible from whatever union can be, you know, contrived between two people of the same sex. It does, it's physiologically impossible. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Can't happen. The, the order of nature requires a man and a woman and the dependency of the child requires a union to, between the parents to protect the interest of that child. It's not one that can be satisfied, you know, just with, you know, sexual relations up front because the human being takes a long time to mature. That necesset- necessitates a a bond between the mother and the father that is not breakable. So when you pretend that two men can get married, it, it's interesting. When you look at the Obergefell decision, there's no definition of marriage. Right. They just say two two men can do it, alt, or two women, whatever. Alternately, they talk about you know entering into this but they don't limit it to two people so you, all you have to do is look at the Obergefell decision and say three people can constitute a marriage god knows what that would you know be but um that is another it's because the basis of society depends upon the protection of human life the preservation of of nascent human life the training of young human life requires these things for the benefit of the individual and the benefit of the parents, and the in, the third benefit is all of society. You can't have something called marriage that's between a man and a man. I mean, you can have friendships, but you don't have any carnal relationships that constitute marriage between persons of the same sex
2: mm-hmm.
1: so that, that that's why another it, it is the origin of all uh the rights because it's the origin of the individual human in the created order that must be preserved that must be defended it must be reflected in the civil laws and when you don't have that you have uh what you have now is you now have the claim uh that uh Homosexuals have a right to in vitro uh, fertilization. They rent women. Uh, they have uh, insemination via very you know, odd practices. The woman, in effect, becomes a temporary concubine. She enters into a contract to you know carry the baby, and then under contract she turns the baby over. Well, if you stop for a second, you don't pretend you're a Christian or anything like that at all to have a contract for a human being and turning them over
2: right.
1: where did we have that in american history before right oh yeah. slavery slavery yeah. you had a contract yeah. you had a contract hey i have a contract you know um this woman i'm, I'm impregnating her her property is mine well no it's not
2: right
1: you you're not in other words you, we are we are revivifying slavery because of the stupid obergefell decision because homosexuals can't have kids by nature
0: and with that, we're going to take a short break again. We're going to come right back with Delegate Bob Marshall for the last segment. And don't, don't go anywhere. It's only going to get
4: better. Thanks. Think back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health, sleeping better, full of energy and focus. We know that fades with age and you might be feeling the effects of aging as low energy and poor sleep, but it doesn't have to be that way.
3: like you to meet Dr. Ron Martinelli, forensic criminologist, police expert, and weekly columnist on America Out Loud. Dr. Martinelli, from a law enforcement perspective, what's the biggest change we've seen in policing today? More connection with the community. Uh, You know, there are good changes and not so good changes. You know, our crime rate in the United States has gone up and the motivation of officers because of what we refer to as the Ferguson effect, have caused officers uh, not to be as proactive in looking for danger signs and criminal activity as before. A lot of that has become political. And so it's sort of a symbiotic relationship. When you disincentive officers, uh, they're not out there proactively looking for the criminals like they were before because they're afraid of of getting in trouble. As a prolific author and regular contributor on America Out Loud, how can you use your voice to change the narrative in the public sphere? Well, you know, I always say that the truth will set you free, and without truth, there is no justice. And uh, we need to have a a unified response. That's the only way that we're going to keep all of us safe out there. We're excited you're here, and we hope you'll share with your friends, family, and associates You can get our apps on Android or Apple. We stream 24-7. Welcome to the new era in communications, America Out Loud talk radio. All
0: right, you're back with Terry Beatley and Delegate Bob Marshall. We're talking about his new book and and what's happened to the republic so the new book's called reclaiming the republic you know we have a hundred and eighty eight thousand precincts across america how many of those precincts are managed by christians people who understand what's at risk if we lose our country, you know, to the far left, whatever you want to call them. Progressives is another word for communists, is another word for Marxists. Call it whatever you want, but it means death, destruction, you know, really barrenness for America. So, um, Bob, what I wanted to swing over to is explain first what is the 17th Amendment, and then we're going to dig into what have been the net effects of the 17th Amendment. So what, what, what was it, and what, what year did that happen?
1: Okay, well, this was like about
2: 1917,
1: okay. 16, okay. something like that. Early I didn't write about the 17th Amendment, but I, but I know about it, and I know why we have it. The original Constitution had state legislatures picking the United States Senators. Now, this was in part because the the states were still were kind of structurally stronger than they are at present. You didn't have, uh, you know, uh, 50 or 100 million dollar campaigns. You didn't have people from across the country spending campaign money, you know, from people from a business in California spending money in a uh, election race in New York or, or Maine or New Hampshire. Right. Because the state legislature was the one that picked them, and you couldn't you couldn't make a campaign donation to a state legislator to pick a federal uh senator for the state it it just it structurally it it wasn't you know a a possibility, but what happened was <clears throat> fights in the state legislatures at time not as to who they're going to pick, and you had to have both the house and the senate of the of the state legislature pick up the only Exception to that is Nebraska, which is what's called a unicameral legislature. There's only senators. There's only a one legislative body in New Hampshire. Everybody else has got two. We in Virginia is the House of Delegates. there is a state senate. But the senators the senators were not being picked in some places in a timely fashion. And so this gave an excuse or opportunity, and it was the progressives. They called themselves progressives, Robert LaFollette from Wisconsin and so on, to to say we need the direct election of senators well the direct election of senators changed the fed changed the structure federal structure so that the states lost some kind of influence and then national lobbying groups replaced that influence with the ability to make campaign contributions all across the united states for people for which they had no you know no otherwise um, a uh, connection. So that stru- restructured the United States government and made it more national instead of more restrained. And and, and, and again, it, it took the influence from the people within the state and it threw it outside the state to these interests that are criticized so often right now. and And then right now you've got efforts to completely say no money uh in 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 politics at all or no you know Ooh. uh no private money so that's in other words this is another bad solution for a previous bad solution
0: well it, and it, so but that's, that's kind of like
1: how, how that happened
0: well i was gonna say it goes to prove that our founding fathers they knew best they knew why that the uh, U.S. senators needed to be accountable as closely as possible to the people of the state. So therefore, the best way is let the state government representatives, the elected officials, uh, um, choose them. It's just such a shame because, I mean, can you imagine how things would be so different? You know, just look at our own state in Virginia, you know, uh, Senator Kane, Senator Warner. If they knew that they were were really... um, uh, responsible to the people back in Richmond? You know, the senators and uh, how, what, what would it be the House of Delegates would uh, choose The House of
1: Delegates would cast would vote for them and then the state Senate would vote for
0: them. Oh my gosh. Everything would be and so as a matter different. Of fact, yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: There were people, right, in, in actually that was like 1912, maybe that was it, uh, or 1913, because Carl Hayden was a senator from Arizona, the first one that was picked. Mm-hmm. Um, as an elected senator, but I think prior to that he was a, an appointed senator. And that was, that was also why budget bills, the appropriations bills, started in the House and not the Senate, because the Senate was appointed and the House was directly elected. That makes sense. This, this Constitution was meticulously thought out by persons of, of prudence, Mm-hmm. And experience right. and judgment, with the the whole history of the you know you know learning of centuries behind them, and the cure, direct election of senators may have been worse than the disease when the state legislature screwed up and didn't uh, you know pick the senators on time. Mm-hmm. So you know the, watch what you ask for. The, these things are not well thought out all the time.
0: Right. <laughs> okay. Well, one of the points you make in your book is. How every American needs to understand how things work in order to work effectively for change. Basically, it's civics 101. Americans need to understand how government, how it's supposed to work. So here's my question: What levels of government do you think can a citizen, you know, influence? Where where can they be most effective? What do you think? I mean, this and for anybody new listening, the most I was just going to say Delegate Marshall was, was a delegate for 26 years. So he knows, he knows where people can be most effective. So what do, you, what do you think there?
1: You can affect the foreign policy of the United States from your living room. How do you do that? You run a precinct. You run a precinct and get people elected to reflect the values of natural law in their public policy decisions. Let me give you kind of an example here. From the precinct, you pick a member of the school board, you pick a member of the supervisors or the city council, you pick your state delegate, you pick your state senator, you pick the U.S. congressman, you pick your U.S. senator, you pick the president of the United States. There's hundred roughly almost 88,000 of these precincts or the, the, these divisions of the entire United States into this many precincts. These precincts are the the bedrock, the ground from which all authority springs. If you start there, you can have an effect in you know the middle of Africa uh on the other side of the uh you know Ganges river. All these things start in your neighborhood you You may not think about it, but that's what it does because every level of government is elected from there now let me give you an example why things can be manipulated. So if you don't know something, you can be easily manipulated. And that's why I find it completely disingenuous for Nancy Pelosi to say, we need to have 16-year-olds be given the vote.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: A a, a Woodrow Wilson poll of 1,000 American citizens, about I guess about two months ago, found that only 19% of those 45 or under Would pass the citizenship naturalization test well if this is like this is less than one in five of american citizens 45 and under didn't these people go to the you know the best colleges and have more opportunities for learning what happened to it did it never get pounded into their head or it slipped out once they were you know leaving school the only way back is for people who have these these christian values to understand the natural law because you're dealing with people, some of whom have faith, some of whom don't have faith. But everybody is subject to the laws of gravity. Everybody is subject to the natural moral order because you're a human being. So when you have citizens hostile to the natural law who are ignorant of the Constitution, it's due process requirements, they are easily led by demagogues. The only way around that is for you the person who has the sign of faith to go and animate the body politic closest to you, namely your precinct. You either do this by walking door to door or driving if you're in a larger uh, area or making live phone calls mm-hmm. to people and getting people's attention on this. You create the community. And the other side's doing this very well. I mean, in my own race in 2017. My opponent would get like more than a hundred people a weekend walking i couldn 't do that in part because too many people thought there 's no way that a guy who thinks he's a woman can win. I oh. knew there was a way for, to have it happen because uh, Barack Obama won my district twice before that,
2: mm-hmm. so
1: you know this can this can happen all he all he did he calls himself a she whatever is get people to go door to door, smile nicely, give the brochure out. And half the time people don't read it, but the name idea is cemented with the voter. And if you're asked to vote, you're more often likely to vote than if you're not asked to vote. So I had people after the election call me up and say, we didn't know who we were voting for. Why? Because the Democrat operatives simply, you know, swept through their neighborhood and say, here, vote for this person right here.
4: Wow. It was it was,
1: done without, it was done reflexively and without thought. So the, our side has got to go out, people who understand the natural law, and candidate, and campaign for candidates who will defend the natural law even when you're not looking at them. Mm-hmm. And they'll defend it whether they're in a school board, whether they're on a, a city uh, council, or a, a, um, a supervisor in a magisterial district, or a state delegate in Richmond. And this so-called Equal Rights Amendment, this is going to come back again next year.
0: Well, let, so, let's pick that uh, apart. You know, I want to spend is, yeah. some time before we we'll okay. run out on the Equal Rights Amendment. You know, a lot, so many women, Bob, are mixed up on this. They think it's actually a good thing for women. Uh, it, you know, it's been defeated and defeated and defeated, but they're relentless. You know, so I think of, uh, you know, what Kate Millett did, you know, years ago. Uh, uh, you know, with her plan to destroy America by destroying the patriarchy and spreading—you know—basically, um, it was an attack on the American family, and then using women as pawns right. to spread Marxism across our country, and and it's worked brilliantly. So, here's my question: Well, explain, uh, well, explain what what are the pitfalls of the ERA? What what would be the net effect of if if it ever did get passed, the Equal Rights Amendment?
1: The- there is a radical difference between equality and identity. The ERA was, was devised to bring about an identity between men and women. That's not, but again, that's not the way God created the natural order. But that's what these egalitarians want to, want to push on us. So if you have to treat everybody identically, that means you can make no law for which sex is a determinant um, of the outcome of the operation of the law, which means right now you've got the Selective Service Act, which is where everybody who's between 18 and 25 signs uh, the Selective Service uh, you know Selective Service system. You have to sign it. If you don't sign it. You can't get a driver's license, regular private driver's license. You can't get a commercial driver's license. You're not eligible for certain grants the state government gives out. There's a whole bunch of things that happen. If you cannot make a distinction, and right now only males are subject to this, why? Because only males have been put in frontline ground combat. Now, you know, firing a, a, a pressing a button on a helicopter to discharge a missile to go about six miles away from you is not frontline ground combat. Women can do that, but upper body strength is needed for ground combat, frontline ground combat. Women don't have it. It's not evil. It's not malicious. The creator's not you know, biased. He made women different from men, and that should be recognized. But it cannot be recognized if you've got this Equal Rights Amendment because the purpose of it is to have what's called strict scrutiny. What that means is that, that no distinction – between men and women will be allowed
2: Mm.
1: to be applied in the adjudication of a statute. So if you have no distinction at all, you can't make a law banning abortion. Why? Because as far as I know, and anybody else knows only women get pregnant. So you're making a, a law which depends upon sex for its application. Therefore that is illegal, unconstitutional under a an equal rights amendment, and you could be Mother Teresa or or you know the late Justice Scalia, and if this equal rights thing is part of the Constitution, it's it's abortion on demand. You must pay tax money for abortion mm. because you can't deny a a a woman money for an operation based on sex. So I mean, this is you're just so, ghastly what this does. Also, also, let's say you're you know, a college student, and you're with some of the girls, and you had too much to drink, or, you, or the car reeks from alcohol, and you're, you're pulled over. The sheriff takes you in to the local jail and deposits you into jail full of uh, three guys accused of sexual assault. You say, wait a minute, I don't want to do this. I say, sorry, honey, uh, I can't have a, a, a practice which makes a distinction based on sex. Tough luck.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: that's what happens. You have no institutional privacy. The so-called right of privacy, which came in this uh, decision of the Supreme Court in 1965, Griswold versus Connecticut, which pretended to establish a constitutional right of privacy. Nobody had ever seen this before. But anyway, it established a right of privacy for for the use of birth control in marriage. There, The ERA people claim you can apply that as a general right of privacy in non marital situations. No, you can't. The A.E. The, uh, e. Dick Howard, who's a constitutional scholar from the University of Virginia, wrote the commentary on the Virginia Constitution, mm-hmm. criticized individuals who claimed that you have a general right to privacy in an institutional setting like a jail or dormitories in schools or a locker room in a high school or junior high school. And he said, No, you don't. You can't, this is not a one-to-one relationship. You know, right to use birth control, uh, you know, by married people is not a right to be, you know, free of the gaze if you're a 14-year-old girl from a 16-year-old boy in a locker room.
0: Well, there you have it, America. America Out Loud, we are shouting louder and louder with... Delegate Bob Marshall, the book is Reclaiming the Republic. Uh, Delegate Marshall, thank you for being on. Thank you for writing the book. And America, go get the book. We're going to have a link for your book right on our platform on uh, the What's oh, the Wrong? It'll okay, yeah, so be right there. They can click it. And so, America, get the book, read it, sit down and read it with your family. That's your action item. If you've got teenagers in your house, Sit down you know once a week or a couple times a week, read a chapter together, discuss and then and then because if you don't do it, who is? All right, thank you, and we will see That's you it. next time.